then when you don't have trust in these institutions, whether that's the academy or religious organizations or the media, you start to see a fraying in civic fabric. You see that people don't feel like they can trust each other as much as, as we might like. And so it has some real downstream effects that are not healthy for a peaceful, functioning republic. Well, hi again, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton. This is the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. My name is Mark Vandermoss, and it's my pleasure to be your host once again on the podcast of the Acton Institute. And uh, that voice you heard there at the top of the show was that of Molly Hemingway. She is a senior editor and author at The Federalist, uh, and uh, she's going to be talking today with our own Sarah Stanley about fake news and other topics I'm sure they're going to hit as well. But uh, the the important thing to know is that Molly's going to be joining us next week uh, in person here at the Acton Institute to kick off the fall 2017 Acton Lecture Series. Uh, and if you want to join us, we would welcome you to, uh, to come and, and be with us in the Mark Murray Auditorium on uh, September 28th uh, for that event at uh, noontime. We'll be having a lunch lecture again, and uh, you can register if you'd like to join us. Uh, just head over to acton.org slash events, and you can sign up to be with us on September 28th to see Molly Hemingway from The Federalist. Uh, and uh, we also have a discussion today. Bruce Edward Walker is back with another edition of Upstream. He's going to be talking with Robert Dean Lurie about a couple of good bands, Fleet Foxes, first of all, and uh, R.E.M. as well. And uh, if you're an R.E.M. fan, you know that this year is the 25th anniversary of, uh, and I, I humbly state my opinion here, their best album, Automatic for the People, which is a beautiful piece of of, uh, of modern rock. And uh, Bruce is going to be talking with Robert Dean Lurie today about that. Robert Dean Lurie is an author and cultural commentator, and uh, great discussion coming up here on Radio Free Acton today. So without further ado, let's head over to our first segment, uh, Sarah Stanley, talking with Molly Hemingway here on Radio Free Acton. Sarah Stanley here, Managing Editor at the Acton Institute, and I'd like to welcome Molly Hemingway. She is the Senior Editor of The Federalist, as well as a longtime journalist. Hi, Molly. How are you doing? Good, good. Um, so you're going to be here in Grand Rapids pretty soon, talking about the crisis of credibility, the promise and peril of media's lost authority. So I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about that before our event. Yeah, I just find this topic so interesting. I've been following the media for most of my career. That's a lot of what I do is media criticism. And it's always been interesting to see how the media determine what is a story or what isn't a story, how they cover a given story. And I think most people see that what's happened recently is just a widespread loss of credibility. And part of that, of course, is how the Trump campaign was covered. But it's really so much more than that. You know, um, there have been stories that have been really poorly done about, for instance, the campus rape epidemic, uh, you know, stories that turned out not to have a basis in fact. And like Rolling Stone has had to pay a lot of money for, for doing a bad job with a story like that. So it's really across a bunch of different topic areas, whether it's politics, religion, culture, people are suspicious and not without reason about the job that many media institutions are doing. Do you think this is kind of correlated to a distrust in institutions in general, or is it kind of isolated with media? I do. I, I think that we've seen 
it's interesting because it's sort of been a coordinated, willful attack on institutions, and now we're we're beginning to more and more see the fruits of that belief that institutions are, do not should not have the uh, trust that they had for so long. And then when you don't have trust in these institutions, whether that's the academy or religious organizations or the media, you start to see a fraying in civic fabric. You see that people don't feel like they can trust each other as much as, as we might like. And so it has some real downstream effects that are not healthy for a peaceful, functioning republic. And, you know, it's an interesting thing to think about what needs to be done to reclaim some of that peace or to fight for it. Do you think that the the rise of social media and the kind of 24-hour news cycle has anything to do with this sort of breakdown of trust? <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think there's upside and downside to it. On the one hand, you see things like one of the worst things that probably happened was giving journalists Twitter accounts. So people probably had suspicion before social media that reporters might not be terribly smart or they might be a little bit biased. But when it's all on display on someone's Facebook or Twitter, it's it's just impossible to forget. At the same time, these things help give people a venue for reacting to problems with stories, getting corrections that maybe would have been ignored in the past. And so it's, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, it, you have some good stuff happening with social media, including the chance for people to publish on their own as opposed to having to go through these sort of moribund, older institutions. But there's also just the pace of technology right now that means that we are constantly covering things. We don't even stick with stories for very long before we move on to the next outrage. And that, I think, is not healthy. And then you said you've been kind of following this for a very long time. Overall, do you see any sort of divide regarding the trust in, in, in not institutions, but in media among the either left-leaning or right-leaning? Like, do you see more left-leaning people have more trust or more right-leaning have more or vice versa? Well, credibility is off the chart for people across the board, uh, meaning people, whether they're left or right, they tend not to express much trust in major media. It is far, far worse with people on the right than on the left. And that's Understandable in part because of the lengthier period of time that people on the right have been subject to some of the problems in media institutions. You know, the group think, the lack of opening or tolerance to other ideas. Uh, but it, so yes, it is worse on the one side, but it's pretty bad for, for all people. And also, people tend to think they know that people within their own shared political space uh, might have similar feelings as they do, but. It's actually true that there have been all sorts of groups that have not gotten really robust treatment by the media or had their stories not covered well for a long time. And that can be religious groups or racial groups, political groups. So this is something, oddly enough, dislike of the way the media determine what is news and how it's going to be covered is something that can unite a lot of people. Right. Yeah. I'd like to pivot a little bit and talk a little bit about fake news, like actual fake news, these websites that popped up that used a domain that looked like a real website, but was actually fake. And the way they make their money is exactly the same that real journalism makes money, you know, clicking and following and that ads, the ad money revenue. Can you comment on that a little bit? Like, do you think this is causing some of this loss of credibility? Do you think there's a better way to 
for sort of paid journalists? Well, you know, fake news is something that has been with us for a very long time. People have intentionally tried to deceive people for financial or other reasons for a very long time. This is another way that technology has exacerbated the problem. I think the key to making sure that actual fake news, you know, stuff that's willfully, maliciously deceptive, uh, doesn't take root is to teach people critical reading skills, get them to think through how to determine if a news story is real or not, what the sourcing is like. And so that's not an easy path, but it's really the best thing. And that's what people should be doing anyway, no matter where they're getting their information. They should be thinking about um, how much they can trust it. And if you're in the downtown area of Grand Rapids on September 28th, feel free to join us for an event with Molly, hearing her talk a little bit more about media. Uh, and you can go ahead and visit actin.org slash events. That's A-C-T-O-N dot org slash events, where you can sign up and learn a little bit more about this event we're going to have. Hello and welcome to Upstream. I am your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and today I'll be speaking with Robert Dean Lurie about the new Fleet Foxes album, Crack Up. And we will also touch a little bit on the 25th anniversary of R.E.M. And uh, Robert has uh, special knowledge of that album uh, as he grew up, or spent, I'm sorry, he spent time in Athens, Georgia, where uh, R.E.M. comes from. So anyway... Uh, hello, Robert. How are you? Good, Bruce. How are you doing? I'm doing terrific. Uh, a little bit of background information. Robert and I met some time ago uh, in a little dingy dive bar somewhere in Royal Oak, Michigan. and It was selected for uh, us to meet and talk about music because it had one of the, the better jukeboxes in the uh, southeast Michigan area, if not everywhere. So uh, it was absolutely terrific. We had a great conversation. And... Since those days, uh, a band has come to the fore, and their name is Fleet Foxes, and uh, their new album is Crack Up. It's their, I believe it's their third album. And tell us a little bit about it, Robert. Well, I, I am impressed by the Fleet Foxes in general, and this album in particular. It's so easy and difficult to sum up their sound. Uh, there are some obvious reference points. Um, they're, they're clearly influenced by a lot of the sort of close harmony groups of the 60s, a lot of the folk rock type stuff, um, whether it's um, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Simon and Garfunkel. Um, you mentioned an email, Bruce, uh, the band Love, and that clearly is a, is a touch point as well. Um, so this album is stylistically uh, a considerable leap forward for them. It's an important listen, I think, because it reassures us in some sense that the kids are all right, but in another <laughs> sense, it tells us that the kids are not all right. Uh, so, so let me uh, yeah elaborate. Let me kind of go through both of those real quick. Yeah. So, so uh, and of course, had to throw in a, a who reference there. You know your audience exactly. Um, the kids are all right. Uh, what I mean by that is the primary songwriter of this band. Um, his name is Robin. Pecknold, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but um, he is very much a millennium. He's very much plugged in. He's uh, a bit of an Instagram junkie. Uh, he gets most of his music from various online sources and file sharing. He's, he's a plugged in, wired up millennial. And 
the, the wrath on the millennials, um, and which is somewhat justified, is that you know while they have this sort of breadth of uh, access to information, the the resulting uh, thinking by a lot of people of the generation can sometimes be scattered and shallow. Um, and this album is kind of a, I guess, a rejoinder to it because it's very sophisticated, um, has a very timeless sound, and uh, it, it trades in sort of classic ideas of melody, songcraft, harmony. Um, it's it's challenging in some ways, but but overall it's it's, it's pleasing to the ears. Um, and, and it's just reassuring, I think, to see a songwriter of that generation kind of carrying the torch and um, making a very thoughtful contribution to popular music. So the kids are all right. So then on the flip side, the themes of the album um, are, are very, uh, I guess, dark and confused, you know, purposefully so. I read an interview with the songwriter in Pitchfork, and he stated, I've struggled at times with finding a solid, objective reason to live, or I should say I've struggled with the notion of needing an airtight reason. And uh, certainly his generation does not have a monopoly on this. This is sort of the classic kind of existentialist struggle. But it seems pretty prevalent, I would say, in, in his generation. Um, and I suppose to his credit, the lyrics of the album don't really attempt to explain why this is such a kind of widespread feeling amongst people his age. Um, it just kind of documents what that's like. And a, a second part of his quote is also kind of telling because then he continues by saying, so that has meant coming around to making my own meaning and finding meaning in connection to other people. And, and here you kind of slide into sort of a secular humorist um, grappling with it, um, which is, you know, even he sounds a bit unsatisfied with that conclusion that he's come to. Um, and again, I don't really know his background. I don't know if he has any religious inclinations or lack thereof. I don't know if that's even an option for him. But I think the album is useful in the sense that in a very beautiful way, it kind of gives a voice to that struggle. Um, you know, usually when that sort of thing is documented in sound, it's very noisy, abrasive, off-putting. Um, and so it's kind of uh, beguiling, I think, to to have this this very lovely sounding record that explores these these types of things. And I'm impressed by it. It's it is a beautiful sounding album, and uh, I would say to listeners who uh, might be inclined to say, listen to, uh, or, you know, the Buffalo Springfield, there's, there's a lot of, uh, Buffalo Springfield sound to it as well. And I think it, and I think it actually, um, you know, for those who, uh, have no other option for Sunday morning that, uh, it's, it's a perfect Sunday morning listening album. It, it, it really is. Well, let's turn a little bit, uh, Robert, uh, you, once lived in Athens, Georgia, this hometown of uh, the B-52s and that other little band, uh, R.E.M., and uh, we're now celebrating the 25th anniversary of Automatic for the People, and that was pretty much the the peak of their creativity and uh, 
tell us a little bit about that because uh, you you knew the band members and uh, you were there when the album was released. Sure, and I should clarify that that my connection to the actual people in the band is very very tangential. So I, even saying that I know them, we can say that I've met members of REM, but that's about as far as I'll go. I did, however, live in Athens. Um, it's a pretty close-knit community uh, in, in just, just the town in general and also the music scene. So everyone knows everyone who knows everything about REM. Um, that album is uh, definitely a peak, and I was looking at the uh, track list today, and I was just, just kind of marveling over the, the number of really quality songs that are on there. Um, it's interesting that we're talking about these two records side by side because, in a way, I think automatically people also kind of get at some of the subjects. But um, interestingly uh, and surprisingly for REM, um, it actually tackles them a lot more directly than the Fleet Foxes do. Um, there's a lot of sort of meditations on mortality, on finding meaning in life. Um, and, you know, REM, as you know, Bruce, and, and, and some of the listeners may know, a lot of their earlier material uh, had very uh, deliberately obscure lyrics and automatic for the people uh, in songs like Sweetness Follows, uh, Try Not to Breathe, Find the River, Night Swimming. These are all very um, kind of beautiful little snapshots that deal in those subjects and um, kind of find peace in uh, the inevitable, uh, you know, death but also uh, meaning in life. And, and uh, there is uh, actually, there does seem to be a spirituality to the album. Uh, I know that Michael Stipe was raised a Methodist and, uh, you know, he went away from that as an adult. And I'm not sure where his, his uh, spiritual leanings might go now, but um, there does seem to be maybe a backdrop of, of uh, you know, his, his early religious uh, awareness in uh, some of the music on this album. Well, yeah, and I, I think a lot of that, if, if I may interject, is uh, simply the fact that uh, at that time, Stipe was writing the, the lyrics. Uh, he was experiencing the loss of many of his friends through the AIDS epidemic and, and what have you. So uh, there is just a, a pall over a lot of the album, even though it, it, it's it's a beautiful album. I remember when it was released. I think it was Timothy White wrote a review in Musician Magazine, and uh, just his description of the album was enough to bring tears to your eyes. That it, it, because it, it really is one of the more beautiful albums uh, released in pop music in the 1990s. Absolutely. You know, definitely the AIDS thing. Certainly that that must have been on his mind um, during that time. Um, However, it, it, it doesn't really nail itself down for the most part to a specific time period. Um, and, and I know that he, he lost a grandparent. Uh, I can't remember if his grandfather or grandmother that he was very close to at that time. And a lot of that very direct personal loss informs the album. Um, I should mention that there's one misstep on the album that actually kind of uh, breaks the spell and, and and puts it very much in a specific time. And it's a song called Ignore Land, and it's kind of a political diatribe. And it's the one song on the album that the band have openly uh, said that they regret putting on there. 
Um, it's a very kind of direct screed against the, the Reagan-Bush years. It's it's a failing, I think, uh, from a songwriting perspective. Um, I think it attempts to wrestle with some themes that Stipe did or that he um, wrestled with more successfully in an earlier song called World Leader Pretend. But in Ignore Land, his uh, preoccupations and his anger, I think, maybe got the better of him. And, and the song actually contains the line, um, you're just profoundly frustrated by all this, which has to be maybe one of the worst, clunkiest lines I've ever heard in the song. Um, and I think there's some indication that they had reservations about the song even when they were cutting it because you, either they or their engineer or producer um, – they put kind of a filter effect on the vocal, so it's very difficult to even hear what the words are. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, when I, when I listen to the album, I the the song actually rocks. It, it kicks it, and I I, I I enjoy listening to the music. And I just pretend it's uh, Stipe mumbling his gibberish lyrics from uh, previous in their career, and it works for me. Yeah, and and that's the thing. I think ultimately they probably left it on just because it is a great rock song, and I think the album needed that too because most of the album is somber. It's pretty mellow. It's beautiful, but you know, definitely needed something up tempo. Well, terrific. Robert, thanks for joining me, and uh, I uh, hope to uh, speak with you again soon on some of uh, other new releases. Excellent. Well, it's a pleasure as always, Bruce, and I look forward to talking to you soon. Okay. Well, Robert Dean Lurie is the author of No Certainty Attached, Steve Kilby and the Church, and also the recently published We Can Be Heroes, The Radical Individualism of David Boy. He uh, also works as a musician. He's produced and performed on a tribute album, The Dark Side of Hall and Oates. And besides that, he's just a remarkably intelligent and astute listener. And for Upstream this week, I'm Bruce Edward Walker, and we'll talk to you again next week. Well, that brings us to the end of another edition of Radio Free Acton. Always bittersweet to come to the end of a show. Uh, But before we uh, say goodbye for the day, I do want to offer a word of thanks to our guests today. First of all, Robert Dean Lurie. You just heard him talking with Bruce Edward Walker. He's an author, cultural uh, commentator, and you can find him online at robertdeanlurie.com. L-U-R-I-E, robertdeanlurie.com. Also, Molly Hemingway, thank you so much for joining us today. She is uh, regularly featured at The Federalist, being a senior editor and author over there. Thefederalist.com is where you go to find Molly's writing. Uh, Thank you, Molly, for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks as well to uh, Sarah Stanley and Bruce Edward Walker for handling the interview duties today. Thanks to our producers, Carolyn Roberts and uh, Daniel Menjivar, who did all the uh, button pushing and dial twisting to make this episode happen this week. Thank you so much, guys, for your work on Radio Free Acting. And thanks as well to you. I want to remind you that we want your questions for the uh, Acton mailbag. Uh, we want to be able to answer your questions on the podcast. If you've got something for an Acton, uh, an Acton intellectual or an Acton thinker, uh, please give us a call. The uh, phone number toll free is 888-705-4180. Or you can give us an email, uh, rfa at acton.org. Send over your questions and comments. We'd love to have them. And uh, if you know of other folks who want to listen to uh, good thinking about economics and uh, theology, Things like that, the important uh, foundational aspects of a free and virtuous society. Send them the link to our podcast. Send them the link to the Acton Power blog. 
at blog.acton.org. Thanks so much for joining us today on Radio Free Acton. We will see you again on future editions. Have a good day, everybody.